Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to Office Hours. I'm your host, Daniel Pink, broadcasting from the Clean Cuts Miles Davis studio at Broadcast House here in Washington, D.C. Thanks for being one of the tens of thousands of people around the world listening on the web or through iTunes. Let's go back in time. April 3rd, 1995. It's a date you might not recognize, but one that is historic for reasons you'll soon understand. On that momentous day, a man named John Wainwright bought a book called Fluid Concepts and Creative Analogies, the very first purchase from a company called Amazon.com. Since that time, Amazon has grown at a breathtaking pace. It has infiltrated the public consciousness like few other companies. It has delighted customers, terrified competitors, and earned its CEO a spot as Time's Man of the Year. Now, of course, Amazon still sells books, sure, but now you can also buy baseball bats, toilet paper, even a $285,000 gouache by Mark Chagall. Amazon has become the everything store which is the title of a terrific new book, and we've got the author here in the studio. Brad Stone has covered Silicon Valley for 15 years, writing for Newsweek, The New York Times, and now Business Week. He spent a few years studying Amazon and its founder, Jeff Bezos, hundreds upon hundreds of interviews, and some really, really intrepid reporting. The result is his book, The Everything Store, Jeff Bezos and the Age of Amazon, which is a truly, truly great read. Brad, welcome to Office Hours. Thank you, Daniel. Um, Let me explain to you and our audience how Office Hours works. On each program, we open things up so that listeners around the world can ask our guests questions they've submitted about work, business, life, careers, education, politics, and anything else. If you've got questions, we have answers. And when we don't, well, we always make something up. As we like to say, this program is Car Talk for the human engine. But as always, I get to go first, so let me begin. Brad, it's a terrific book, by the way. The book, again, is uh, Jeff Bezos and the Age of, of Amazon, the, or the Everything Store, Jeff Bezos and the Age of Amazon. It's, um, it's, it's just a really, really great read. But, but, um, but why a book on Amazon? You know, after all, in 2013, it was number 49 on the Fortune 500 list. Why not a book about Chevron or CVS Caremark or <laughs> Boeing or Target, companies whose revenues dramatically exceed Amazon's? I want to see Good. that book on CVS Caremark. Great question. Maybe that's my yeah. next book. You know, uh, Amazon is one of the companies that is, is changing the world, right? It's changed the way we shop. It's arguably changing the way a lot of people read. Uh, it's changing the way people build companies. Uh, if you're a Silicon Valley entrepreneur ne- entrepreneur now, you're going to run your operations on Amazon servers. Mm. It's part of their web services Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. division. Um, You know, it's alongside Apple and Google and Facebook as one of the companies changing our world. And I look back a couple of years ago, and I think it was around the time that I was uh, you know, preparing to read Walter Isaacson's book about, book about Steve Jobs. Mm-hmm. And I noticed you know, it was one of many number of good volumes on Apple. And there have been very good books on Google and even some on Facebook, which is relatively new. And no one had gone and really told the Amazon story in depth. And they deserved it. You know, it merited an in-depth uh, account, and uh, that's what I set out to do. There's a lot of there's a lot of really really great great stuff in here. Really, from the early days when he packs up and goes west. Well, he actually goes first to Texas, but eventually that's west from New York City. Um, but I, I thought what was interesting is that um, 
The name was not originally Amazon. Well, tell us about that. That's right. Well, you, you went on a big search for the name. And originally, they registered the company as Cadabra. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, even before that, he's sitting in New York City with his buddy, a guy named Jeff Holden, who later goes to work at Amazon. And they're brainstorming. And, and Jeff's got a, a list of alternatives. And the one I like best, I mentioned in the book, makeitso.com, because <laughs> they're both the Star Trek, the next generation uh-huh, fans. Uh-huh. Uh, he is actually a Star Trek fan. He basically is a Star Trek fan of, of uh, actually kind of scary proportions. I think that's right. Yeah, and of course we could talk about the space uh, stuff he's got going. Oh, on the, the, side. the space stuff is the space stuff is is actually really interesting. But the Star Trek stuff, like I mean, you have a, I mean some just lovely little nuggets in this book. But one of them is you talk about the speech that he gave as the valedictorian of his high school class in Florida. And he starts with a Star Trek reference. Right. And and talks about, devotes the speech to yeah. human space exploration, <laughs> right. which now, of course, he's working on uh, on the side via Blue Origin. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so so but it, so makeitso.com, that didn't stick. Right. Kadabra. Didn't stick. A little bit cheesy. Relentless.com is one I love because I found out that he registered the URL and he kept it. So you go to the web right now, type in that URL. Oh, yeah. It takes you on Amazon. And he eventually looked uh, through the dictionary, came upon Amazon, Earth's largest river, biggest selection, and the rest is history. Right, right. And and it seemed to it seems to have um, it seems to have worked. Um, Let's talk about – I want to talk about Bezos here in a moment, but I want to go – you did a very nice job of taking us inside of, of Amazon. You did, I mean, literally several hundred interviews with people past and present there. And I guess one of my surprises, uh, even as somebody who, like you, writes about business, is that there is a um, brutality to the culture that I found uh, surprising um, in number of dimensions. One is um, the way that – they treat employees like he's not a nice guy to work for. No, that's right. He he doesn't want Amazon to become a comfortable place. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is by design. And and brutality might be uh, too strong of a word. I, I know a lot of former Amazon employees would agree with that word, uh, and others would dispute it. It's I would I would call it adversarial. Mm-hmm. And, and in mm-hmm. fact, their Amazon posts its corporate values on its website. Mm-hmm. And one of them is is have backbone, disagree, and commit. Yeah. And and Bezos talks about something that he calls social cohesion, mm-hmm. and he doesn't like it. You know, he thinks people go out of their way to agree yeah. uh, and to foster consensus when really what happens is, you know, perspectives need to be banged off each other. And it's why Amazon can be a tough place to work and people burn out and the churn is high. And it might just be why it's a very successful company. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. Um, but let, let's, let's talk about some of this in... Um uh, in the more granular sense, because you have some, again, there's some really, really just I think really delicious uh, nuggets in there. So let's talk about um, question mark emails. Tell right. us about those. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you get a question mark email from Jeff Bezos at Amazon. The first thing you do is you cancel your 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 dinner date. All your plans uh-huh. they're gone. So tell us tell us what it is. Right. Yeah. Okay. So so Amazon has ninety thousand employees. Mm-hmm. It's a huge company, and 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 the CEO cannot uh, you know micromanage to the extent that he might like. But what he does do is he monitors his own email account, and his address is public. Yeah. And when he gets a complaint, let's give it out right now. What is it? Well, Jeff, at Jeff at Amazon. At Amazon.com. I don't know how frequently he reads it, but I know that he does. When he when he gets um, a complaint, he'll forward it to the to the appropriate executive or employee. And, you know, he, he's very efficient in the use of his time. So he'll put a single piece of punctu- punctuation onto the email, a question mark. 
And this comes into your inbox as an Amazon employee, and you drop everything, and you devote yourself to solving the problem and fixing the defect because you're going to have to report back to the CEO's office in a matter of hours. And it's basically two things are happening here. One, he's allowing the customer to audit the organization and to identify defects. Mm -hmm. And the second thing is he's really efficiently using his time to magnify his impact across the organization. You know, you can't, I, the, the example that I use in the book is uh, email marketing, right? It, it's the, the unsolicited yeah. e emails you might get from Amazon. And there's a time in Amazon's history when they were sending out emails for a sexual wellness mm -hmm. products. Mm -hmm. And he found out about it. And, and it, these are called escalations at Amazon. And they had to scramble to explain why they were doing this. So it oftentimes, you know, it, it fixes a defect, and it also results in you know, a lot of consternation and hand-wringing within yeah. the company. Yeah. So I actually thought question mark emails were, I mean, they're direct and to the point. I think they're pretty useful. But um, I started uh, underlining some of the things that he actually says to employees. Um, things like, are you lazy or just incompetent? Why are you ruining my life? Tell us a little bit about that, because he's not—he's not a Mister Nice Guy. I, mean, I no. thought what I found interesting is that his public persona is fairly genial. That's right. He's got the iconic laugh, yeah. and and he's he's a delight to talk to. Now, what I, what I did in the book at a certain point, I was getting so many of these greatest hits from people <laughs> that I, I I was trying to fit them all into the narrative, and I was like, "There's no way." There's so many of these mm -hmm. these. Uh, crushing comments that I've now got in my notebook. And so there's a section in the book where I actually just list them. Mm -hmm. It's sort of miscellany. Um, and, and to be fair, um, you know, these are greatest hits across 15 years. Right. Um, and also, I also believe over time he's gotten to be a little bit of a softer leader. He, I know he's Do you had really a, think so? I think so. I, I, I learned that he had a management uh, leadership uh, uh, consultant at one point working personally with him. You know, and this is, of course, via other employees who say that he has gotten a little bit better. Mm -hmm. um, but, but no, I don't. You know, he he like Bill Gates at Microsoft or Steve Jobs at Apple. He has sets a very high standard, and he wants everybody around him to meet that standard. And he just doesn't suffer fools gladly. If you're working at Amazon, you got to bring your A game, or you will hear it from the boss. Well, he'll say something like, uh, "Is this um, this is the B team? Read a memo. This is the B team memo. Can someone give me the A team memo?" <laughs> yeah, or I'll give you one that wasn't in the book. Yeah. A very common uh, experience at Amazon. Uh, you're, he's, he's reading the memo and say you're working on a project and he finishes the memo and he says, do we have the right people working on this? Yeah. And ouch. that's, that's you right there sitting ouch, in the room. Yeah. Ouch. Yeah. Ouch. Uh, I, I actually, I had an, I had a business idea that I'm willing to offer up to you and to our listeners, um, which would be the, an online Jeff Bezos insult generator where you could, you know, <laughs> send that out. Yeah. Cause I think some of them are actually pretty, they're pretty clever. They're pretty, they're pretty tart. Um, um, Again, I don't want to. I actually think that Jeff Bezos is an incredibly creative guy. Uh, the the focus that he has is he demonstrated from a very very young age is really kind of incredible. And um, but on the brutality part, um, I, I sensed a little bit of of um, kind of um, uh, vindictiveness on people who don't agree with him, or not 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 people, but but um, companies that might disagree with him, or you know he plays hardball big time. A, a good example would be tell us a story about um, the knife company. Oh, that's right. No, he, he Amazon. You know, they say they're customer focused, and yeah. it's true. And it's their critics say that they are ruthless, and that's true too. 
Uh, they, um, you know, Amazon is a retailer. They sell products, but they're a marketplace. You know, they yeah. allow other companies to come and sell products. Well, uh, there's a German knife company called Wusthof, which probably a lot of people are familiar with, sells high-end knives. And they are selling on Amazon for many years. Uh, but they, like every manufacturer, they want to set a price. They do not want to see Amazon or Walmart or Target discounting their knives mm-hmm. because then all their independent retailers right. start to suffer. Right. Uh, and in fact, you know, Wustoff isn't selling to, to the big box stores, but they are selling to Amazon. Now, Amazon has philosophically will match any price uh, online. They, will, they have software trained yeah. to look for the low price and they'll match it. Well, what happens now around 2010, 2011 is all these other sellers in the marketplace, and who knows who they are, they've got mysterious names and there's no way to contact them. They're selling Wustoff knives too, you know, too cheap that, you know, for Wustoff. And Amazon starts matching them. And suddenly Wustoff, this German knife maker with all this company history and, and you know, high paid uh, artisans and its plant in Germany, uh, their model's not working anymore. So to make a long story short, Wustoff actually pulls its knives from Amazon. They go, uh, they Harold Wustoff, the CEO, uh, you know, goes to Seattle, and Amazon reacts very negatively. They're the everything store, so they hate to lose merchandise. And and the and the merchant, the uh, product category manager threatens to advertise for Wustoff's competitors. Uh, you know, threatens uh, to go and try to source product on mm-hmm. the gray market uh, to find it in, you know, any way that they can. Um, and, and you know, the guys that I talked to at Wusthof were shocked, you know, by the fierceness of the response. And that, by the way, is, is really, I think, Jeff Bezos and his personality magnified throughout the organization. Mm-hmm. They are relentless with their focus on their customers. And, you know, the, the action, the self-defense action that this company was taking it was going to hurt selection on Amazon, and so Amazon reacts very harshly. Uh, yeah, okay, right. They also reacted harshly when an analyst had the um, temerity to say that all right. wasn't rosy inside. That's right. And they hit back. Why don't you tell us about that? Oh, it's another great story of of really how you know how fierce this company can be, and in some cases thin skinned, uh, but also very clever in the way. Yeah, uh, clever. I'll give you that. In the way, yeah, in the way they avenge. Uh, it. So there's a, an analyst named Ravi Surya who is plaguing the company in 2000 and 2001, and probably a lot of people don't remember this, but he was getting a lot of attention for proclaiming that Amazon was going to run out of money mm-hmm. and go out of business. And he was on CNBC all the time. And as this is happening, Amazon stock is going from a hundred plus down into the single digits. And Bezos is railing against this guy. They believe his analysis is wrong. And there's a phrase that comes up within Amazon uh, to describe a mathematical error. They're referring to it as a Milleravi. And it's a little inside joke and it kind of manifesting this bitterness they have toward this analyst. Anyway, fast forward a couple of years and Amazon gets through the tough times and becomes profitable in 2003. And I discovered in the course of my research, they had basically built an anagram into the headline of a press release. And the anagram naturally was Milleravi. And it was this little, you know, sneaky, subtle, very insidery way of basically encoding a little bit of an insult oh, to yeah. the public. Absolutely, document. absolutely. I mean, it, it is. Um, we're, it's uh, it's clever. There's no question about it. But we'll come to this in a moment. Uh, there's a great scene in the book where uh, Je- uh, Jeff Bezos is riding in a car with his grandfather, who pulls him over right. after an incident and says something to the line, "It's more. It's harder to be kind 
than it is to be clever. Right. We're, you're listening to Office Hours. We're talking to Brad Stone. He's the author of a terrific new book called The Everything Store, Jeff Bezos and the Age of Amazon. It's really um, just a really great read, really interesting about how this kind of crazy dude uh, uh, became the 12th richest man on the person on the planet and, and created a company that's um, monumental in its own way. I want to go but what do I uh, um, want to go back a little bit and talk about Jeff Bezos the person because you uncover a lot of really really interesting stuff. In fact, you open the book with a story from about a book that was written in the 1970s about a program for gifted children in Houston. And one of the students profiled is this precocious sixth grader with the pseudonym of Tim. Mm. Um, and Tim, you discover, kind of sort of as a bank shot for, via Bezos's mother, was really Jeff Bezos. And so you have, it's really an amazing, I think it's an amazing discovery. Like you have basically an, a non-family account of this guy as he was when he was a kid. And even then, he was special. Well, tell me about that. Right. What was he like as a, what well, was he like you know, as a kid? All, all I have to go with here is the account of, of this woman, Julie Ray. Yeah. You know, her kid is in this gifted uh, program uh, in outside of Houston. And she is uh, an advertising copywriter, uh, but she's really impressed by this school. And so she sets out uh, to... And this school is in uh, Houston. Yeah, right. It's yeah. in Houston. And she sets out to just study this new phenomenon of gifted education. And today she'd self-published the book on Amazon. And of course, back then, no publishers would, would take her book. And she produced a pamphlet with some money she had. Yeah. And I found it in the Houston Public Library. Right. And... Uh, it's amazing because the teachers are really in awe of this kid, uh, Tim, uh, a.k.a. Jeff Bezos. And they say, uh, I think the, the killer quote is, there's no telling what he could achieve uh, with the right guidance. And it's really the perfect segue into the fact that, you know, now, what is it, 40 years, uh, yeah, for, uh, 35 years yeah. later, he's changed the world. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's, quite, it's, it's quite amazing. And he does some really interesting things. He has a, comes up with a, a rating system for his teachers. Um, and right. he is um, he's a he's an interesting guy. And you even chronicle him uh, into high school where he switches high schools at one point, I think, in, his, in the course right. of his high school career. And he goes to a sort of a posher high school in Miami. And he basically says, I'm going to go become the valedictorian of the class. And lo and behold, no one can compete with he him. He does. Everybody and everybody surrenders. basically gets out of the way. It's yeah. like we're now battling for number two, That's right. as one of his friends in there says. But the very beginning of um, Jeff Bezos' life is actually quite, is, is quite interesting. Um, his mom was uh, just 17 when he was born. Uh, she was married, but her marriage broke up relatively uh, quickly. And she essentially exiled his um, biological father and married uh, Miguel Bezos. Um, and they seem to have had a long and happy marriage since then. Um, and, and Jeffrey Bezos actually changed his name from Jeffrey Jorgensen to Jeffrey Bezos, um, or his mom changed his name when he was just a, a little kid. And, and, and Bezos really never saw his biological father. Uh, but you track down his biological father. Um, it's a remarkable story. Just take us through like, how, you, how you found him and what, it was, right. what was it like? You know, I guess to start off, I, I want to explain why I did it. Um, you know, it it was a missing piece. You know, he he's Bezos has. Are you getting about, pushback on it? Like you shouldn't have done that. I, I've gotten a couple of really, messages. yeah, I, not I, much, I, not much. I, but I, I guess I, you know what I feel yeah. the need to explain it because yeah. it feels intrusive. It's not how I like to operate as a journalist. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, you know, look at Steve Jobs or Pr President Obama or President Clinton. 
Lance Armstrong. I mean, it's 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 eerie and maybe even inex, little inexplicable as to how the circumstances of all of their births involve some variation on the story of a missing father or 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 you know or adoption adoption yeah or tragedy. Uh, uh, well, we uh, uh, a few episodes ago on on Office Hours, we talked to Malcolm Gladwell, who's uh, who wrote a book, his latest book, David and Goliath, uh, has some really amazing factoids about how I think fifteen of forty four presidents. Um, of the United States had a parent who died mm-hmm. when they were young. So right. I think that there is... So anyway, I'm just surprised you got pushback on a, it. Yeah, I think it's totally... I felt it was a motivating factor, yeah. and I wanted to hear this yeah. guy's story. Yeah. And the first thing I discovered, uh, just via searching the local archives of Albuquerque, New Mexico, where Bezos was born, was that this guy was a unicycle performer. <laughs> you can't make that up. Right. He was in a circus troupe, and they traveled around, and yeah. they, they tried out for the Ed Sullivan Show, and they played unicycle polo. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, that was remarkable. Uh, and then I you know, tracked him down. Um, I, um, you know, I, I scoured databases. Right. And, and um, you know, and, and one guy who popped up was running a bike shop outside of Phoenix. And, you know, the unicycle connection in the bike shop, I thought that was plausible. Mm-hmm. And it, the birth date seemed right. Yeah. So I went to visit him. Um, I just... And this is in uh, uh, what city in Arizona? Glendale, Arizona? Uh, yep. Glendale, Glendale Arizona. Of Phoenix. Right, right. Um, flew down there at the end of last year. Yeah. Walked into a store. I okay. uh, thought, you know, I would I would go meet him, and he. This is his name. His name is uh, Ted, uh, Ted Jorgensen. Yeah, yep. and to my considerable surprise, because of course I had had various you know thoughts about how it would go. Right. What? What? How do you think it was going to go when you said, "Hey, I'm here to talk about your son that nobody, you know, that, that you never talk about." You know, I, I thought that it was likely that he knew. Um, uh, you know, and actually, I'll tell you what was on my mind. I was actually thinking, I, I wonder if this guy uh, feels competitive with Amazon. You know, because Amazon's got a bike business. So is he a small <laughs> right. business owner right. who, who's getting, you know... Hammered by Amazon. Hammered yeah. by Amazon. And wow, wouldn't that be a story? Yeah. Uh, but instead, I explained what I was doing, and he had no idea what I was talking about. He didn't know that Jeff Bezos was his he son. He said, I'm, I'm, I'm not the father of a... Of a of anybody at Amazon, and I said, you know, when you were young, were you married uh, to a a woman named Jacqueline Geis, and you had a son named Jeffrey? And he said, yeah, is he still alive? Uh huh. And as it turned out, he had wondered, he had spent his whole life wondering what had happened to 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 this child that he had as a teenager. And he had fallen out of touch and dutifully stayed out of their lives. Yeah, yeah. He was basically directed by the mother to stay out of their lives. And I think, you yeah. know, but but he blames himself yeah. wholly. Yeah. Uh, he was, you know, he was uh, carousing and, you know, and, and doing his own thing. Unicycling. And, and unicycling. He, he, he says he, he wasn't a good father. He had really some terrible regrets. Yeah. Um, and he has a very close family and four stepsons now um, and has a, a success, successful business. Uh, but really, you know, was, was I, I really kind of encountered a reservoir of sadness around this issue hmm. in his mm-hmm. past life. And we went to dinner and the story came tumbled out. And then after a while, a couple of weeks passed and he decided he wanted to write a letter to Jeff uh, and to Jeff's mother. And um, uh, that didn't it didn't progress all that far, but Jeff wrote him back. And, and so there was some measure of reconnection there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it's really, I just imagine, I mean, you're a dad and I'm a dad and I just imagine you 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 have a child and you don't see the child for the rest of that child's life. That's mm-hmm. sort of staggering in its own way. And then to find out that he's a billionaire, he's the twelfth yeah. richest person in the world. I mean, it's really and it's he never made and Jorgensen never made the connection. 
which is remarkable. But you know, he he's a small business owner. Yeah. He puts in crazy hours. Yeah. You know, he's sixty nine years old. Yeah. He's, he, he, he's not on the internet. Interesting. Um, so the bike shop does not. He should talk to Amazon Web Services and maybe do something. <laughs> right. Yeah, they uh, can get a dis- family is, and friends discount. I went and looked. He's within thirty miles of four different Amazon oh, right. fulfillment uh-huh. centers. Yeah, and, and it's, it's it's just an incredible story. And, and this book has all kinds of great stories like that. We're talking to Brad Stone. He's the author of the Everything Store: Jeff Bezos and the Age of Amazon. Really, really interesting book about. Um, Amazon and and Jeff Bezos. Um, let's see what else we got here. Um, well, there's so much interesting stuff. So one of, uh, let's let's talk about web services for a moment because I think that you know in the popular attention, what we know about Amazon is that you can buy anything there it, or everything. Sorry, it's the everything store, not the anything <laughs> store. Uh, you can buy you can buy everything there, but uh, Amazon makes a lot of money from something called Amazon Web Services, and that doesn't get a lot of uh, attention. Why don't you tell us what it is and why it matters? Amazon Web Services is really what is now popularly thought of as the cloud. Uh, um, it is it is the way that. Almost every Silicon Valley startup, many large academic organizations, and even some government agencies, they basically run their business on Amazon servers. So mm-hmm. instead of having computers in the back you know, or operating their own data centers, they basically have connections to Amazon's computers over the internet, and Amazon handles all their computer operations. And it's really kind of mystified a lot of analysts and observers how a retailer gets into this enterprise computing business. Mm-hmm. And I, so I tell the story in the book, and it really it goes back to 2004, 2005, Amazon is having a lot of problems with its own infrastructure. And one of the big problems is that all the engineers, none of them can test their experiments or their new products. There isn't enough computing capacity. And long story short, Bezos really makes this intuitive leap to think, wouldn't it be great to have the standalone service that allows anybody to, you know, take care of their computing needs and get access to computer resources and not have to actually own the equipment? And he goes to his board of directors, and they say, why would we possibly go into that business? And he says, because we need it also. Mm. And he, at that point, after getting beat up for many years, has enough credibility with his, with his board that they say, okay. Yeah. And now it's $4 billion business. Yeah, it's incredible. It raises some issues, and I, I, want, I want to pursue some of those issues here in a moment. And I don't want to be too negative on, on Amazon, because I want to get to some of the things that they do that's, that's really amazing. But let me talk about that. So, you know... That kind of business inevitably raises uh, questions of um, anti of, of competition. I mean, if you are the web services provider for Netflix that's doing streaming video and you're in streaming video, that presents a problem. Um, and Amazon has become so big, like any company that's become that becomes big, you you have to think about those kinds of issues. And, and you know, you think about Amazon as a bookseller, but it's also now a book publisher. It's also the maker of devices for reading. I, I mean, is there, is this an antitrust investigation waiting to happen? I, I think that it will definitely get more scrutiny. And when you're a platform, yeah. and then when you're the largest kind of player on that platform, exactly. that's the recipe. That's Microsoft yeah. in the 90s. Exactly. Now, they are very careful, and I have to say, if Netflix thought it was a problem, Netflix probably wouldn't be using Amazon Web Services. True. So the fact that it's growing and uh, really setting the standard in the cloud business, it tells you something that at least the customers believe there's not much of a risk. Right. And then having seen the operation myself, 
Um, Amazon Web Services is... Is it one operation? I can't remember. Well, web Amazon services. Web Services. I, I mean, you know, the, the division. Oh, the division. Okay, yeah. not the not the place where the, the servers actually no, are. No, no, right. Are, That's all distributed yeah, around yeah. the country. I'm at the, the headquarters, Got the it. building uh-huh. of AWS. Right. It is separate. Uh-huh. You know, Andy Jassy uh, runs it. He's a longtime Amazon executive and was a Bezos shadow for a number of years, the guy who followed him around and sat in on all his meetings. Uh, he has a lot of autonomy. Um, so I actually do p- believe that they do preserve the the so-called Chinese wall. Mm-hmm. But it will be interesting, and I think, you know, where the antitrust scrutiny is likely to come is in is in areas like books and electronics where Amazon is a marketplace and it's selling the products and it's using its way to get to leverage great deals. Yeah, that that I believe, you know, ultimately when they make, if they make more acquisitions yeah. or really if they just continue to gather market share uh, yeah, at some point, as this always does seem to happen with the, the big tech companies, they'll 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 get a knock on the door, and it'll be the Department of Justice. <laughs> um, probably get an email. Uh, Jeff, you just didn't know where you find him. Jeff at Amazon.com. Yeah, the question mark to the yeah. lawyers. Okay. <laughs> um, the, one, one thing I do very much admire about Jeff Bezos, and there's a lot to admire in this guy. You can admire his his focus. You can admire his. Um, Ability, what I think is really to respect what the facts say and go from there and not be too wedded to things like social cohesion or folklore or anything like that. But I think one of the things that really struck me about him is he really does take the long view, the super long view, to the point where um, profit is less of an immediate concern and always has been. And he's willing to sort of, uh, dis, you know, um, uh, buck the conventional tide on that. Um, what do you, what do you make of his intensely long view of things? It, it's it's fairly unique. Yeah. Um, the 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 best example is is uh, Amazon Fresh. That's the grocery delivery business that they've been trying out in Seattle since 2007, mm-hmm. and only this year did they did they start to roll it out to parts of LA. Mm-hmm. Now Bezos thinks that you know for Amazon to become the size of Walmart, they need the they need to conquer groceries and apparel. And they've been working on that now for about seven years. Mm-hmm. And they go very slowly, and they spend a lot of money, and they learn, and they improve, and they iterate. And you're right. Uh, investors don't, you know, they seem to allow this to happen and yeah. because they've they've seen the strategy pay fruits with the Kindle, yeah. with Amazon Web Services, uh, re- with, with the retail business, which really wasn't successful for the first uh, eight years. You know, it took eight years to, to make a profit. Uh, and he, he's just, you know, kind of called his shots again and again. And once you're right that number of times, you know, pe- people love being along for the ride. Yeah, and and it's it's really him. As you tell the story, it's really him calling the shots. It's not it's not it's not like he has a uh, a council of cardinals advising him or anything like that. It's really a, a guy. I mean, for a company of this size, it's remarkable. It's almost like a family business where it's like he's in charge and everybody and everybody answers to him. One of my favorite parts on on that point. We're going to take some uh, listener questions here in a moment, but but I'm not done. Uh, one of my favorite parts. Uh, I think it's toward the end of the book where you discover something known as the. Amazon dot love memo, right? Which I found quite interesting, and it's a it, well. T- tell tell us about that, and tell us what was in it, right? So, um, well, I just want to. I'm proud of that because Amazon, it's it, they are they are impressive in how they preserve the internal company documents. No memo has ever really leaked from the company. Mm. Uh, Yahoo, I don't think a memo has ever been written that hasn't fallen <laughs> in the outsider hands. But I did, I, I did find this memo. Uh, that is basically Bezos in 2010 
wondering aloud, what happens when Amazon becomes the size of Walmart? Mm. You know, when these retailers get big, they're magnets for negative attention because they start to affect the, the character of the community and they put a lot of little guys out of business. And of course, Amazon's already doing that. But how can we be loved and not feared? And that memo is him thinking aloud. Yeah, really that, that's the key. It's really you know? about, and he separates their companies that are loved and companies that are feared. Right. So in the first why category- Why is Microsoft uh, feared, yeah. frankly? Why, why didn't its fans come out in force during you know, the period of its, of its heightened criticism? Who's in the fear, who else is in the fear category? Walmart. That's right. Of course, Walmart. Uh-huh. Um, who else? We should look. Yeah, let's um, see. It's actually written down in, the, in this book. It's toward the end here. Yeah. Um, it's uh, it, the companies that are loved. I remember Disney, uh, Nike. Right. I think UPS. Uh, UPS. Um, I, yeah. Here's the thing about UPS. Yep. Not surprisingly, given that the business that he's in. Um, it's, we're, we're looking. Oh, here. Oh, I, okay, I found the memo. I found the memo. We're here on, if those of you following along at home, it's page 316, uh, 317. Uh, oh, the Apple, the, uh, the here's, here's uh, the companies that, that are loved are Apple, Nike, Disney, Google, Whole Foods, Costco, and even UPS. And on the other end of the spectrum, mm-hmm. he added companies like Walmart, Microsoft, Goldman Sachs, and right. Exxon, and Exxon Mobil. And, and, and he really sees him, he really, really wants to be, I mean, we can talk about the psychology of it. He really wants to be loved. That's right. It's interesting for someone who who doesn't certainly doesn't uh, cultivate the press that much anymore. But what he really derives from this analysis is that innovation is the key. That mm-hmm. fairly or not, if you're perceived as being inventive and yeah. constantly you know creating new services and products for the customer and trying to improve yourself in the eyes of the customer, then you, then you tend to be admired and it and maybe outweighs some of the you know the the more uh, you know uh, deleterious you know yeah. uh, consequences of your size. Yeah, and, and he also says, I mean, it's, a, it's actually a nice way to put it. He, he says, I mean, I'm, I'm reading from the memo that, that, that you found that, I mean, again, it's a, it's a great, great find and one of many in the book he, uh, where this is Bezos saying, explorers are cool, conquerors are not cool. Right. And, you know, they're, they're just, it's packed with irony because <laughs> in many respects, Amazon is a conqueror. Yeah. And at the end of the book, I kind of conclude is, you know, that Amazon is missionary and it's mercenary. Yeah. But it desperately wants to be seen as missionary because it knows that one day this model, he's always believed that this model goes to Walmart scale. And, you know, so that's 75 billion to 350 billion, a lot of runway. And he also knows that when Amazon gets to that size, you know, the critics will be out in force. Oh, yeah. And you listen to a lot of his language now at press conferences, and it really is. We like to be pioneers. We like to be explorers. That's the culture of the company. And it's probably, it's definitely true. But it's also very calculated. Mm, yeah, right. Exactly. He's, I mean, is he a mercenary or a missionary? And I think your answer at the end is appropriate. He's, he's both. Let's, um, let's go uh, hear from some listeners, see what they have on, on tap for Brad. Let's um, go to our first caller. Hey, Brad. Dale Halverson in Compound, Texas. Wondering if you could contrast the cultures of Amazon and Apple. Both of those seem to be driven by visionary, yet Amazon seems to allow people in the company to grow. From those that get a glimpse behind the Apple curtain, it appears to be more of a sweatshop that stifles individuals. Thanks. Very good question. Interesting. It's a great juxtaposition. Uh, the companies are similar in many respects. You know, the, the one that pops to mind, of course, is the secrecy. Um, right. Apple might be a little more draconian even than Amazon. And of course, you know, they were, they, they were both led by visionary leaders. Um, Apple, of course, uh, you know, um, Steve Jobs passed away. Um, 
and and I think they're they're both really um, innovative companies um, and and inventive. Um, but there are differences. Um, I mean, Amazon is is much, I mean ninety thousand employees, right? They're hiring seventy thousand. Uh, temporary workers for the holidays. They have fulfillment centers. I mean, they're they are a logistics company in a way that Apple does not even have to consider. I, I kind of think of of Amazon like ev- for every fifty billion in additional sales, the complexity there sprawls. Whereas at Apple, you know, y- y- you get you get uh, you know a couple million more customers. You just you just tell Foxconn to make more tablets, right? Right. So Amazon's a much more difficult company to run. Uh, I think it's much more complex internally. Mm. Um, I think the culture is more complex. Uh, and, and then, you know, you've got a founder-driven company at Amazon and unfortunately no longer at Apple. Um, and, and so there's, you know, the, there's the cult of personality at Amazon uh, and people's kind of, you know, tend to sort of rotate around the central sun, you know, mm. the CEO. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know, I think in 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 a lot of respects, they share some DNA. Um, yeah, and I don't know if you agree with the with the caller's um, uh, premise that that you know uh, Amazon a Amazon's a kind yeah. place to work. And... Well, no, I mean Amazon is, gets criticized for yeah. the for the treatment of its workers and its fulfillment centers. I have never really considered Apple to be a sweatshop. My yeah. my impression is that. Uh, you know the engineers there are well paid and they work hard. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, but they but they work for you know an amazing company that they're proud of. Now I haven't spent as much. Yeah, time yeah. It's a Apple. it's a little bit it's a little bit controlling. I wonder whether the the, the um you know there is there is an analogy perhaps between what's going on in Foxconn and what's going on in these fulfillment centers, and those are, those are generally not great jobs. Right. Um, That's true. And, and it's part of what you know. And I think I mean you you know you. Um, you, you you write about this in the in the book. I mean, it just it's the the nature of these kinds of companies and doing these kinds of things in the economy requires some jobs that aren't that great. And and as consumers, we can say, wait a second, I don't want to support this, or I'm totally fine on this, and I'll take my discounted knives. Um, let's get, let's take another uh, uh, caller. Hello, Daniel. This is uh, Rita, CEO of Parker Games. Um, big fan of your writing. My question for your guest today is. Uh, was failure a big motivation behind the success? Um, and I'll take the answer off the air. Thanks, you. That's a great question. I think tolerance of failure was a big part of Amazon's success. Tolerance of failure. They, they tried a lot of things that didn't work, you know, and, and they are willing to experiment um, and to pull back. Um, I, I'll throw out a couple of examples. Um, you know, Bezos spent a lot of time in about 2003 on the jewelry business. Oh, right. Uh-huh. At Amazon. You know, I think uh, they probably have a pretty good watch business, but I don't know too many guys that are buying the engagement ring on, on the Internet right now. Um, but, you know, even he, though there's a wonderful thing in there where, where his goal was basically you could sell it for you could you could buy it on Amazon and then get it appraised at a higher right. price than you paid. Right. Right. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Um, other Amazon failures. You know, when the when the Kindle two came out, there was this novel uh, text to speech function. Do you remember that? They it was they, horrible. they read the book in a yeah. robotic voice. Yeah. It was horrible. I mean, it was an interesting experiment. Yeah. Uh, got criticized by yeah. uh, you know people trying to protect the audiobook business, but ultimately people didn't use it, right? Because it wasn't a good experience, and they moved on. And now the new Kindles don't have it. Uh, so I think. Um, you know, uh, willingness to try and to fail, and 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 probably the most prominent example is you know when the when the shares collapsed in two thousand two thousand one. Right. You know, and he was a pinata, uh, but you know they learn and they move on and they get stronger. And probably if you're a competitor of Amazon, that's what you're that's what you're scared by that failure makes them stronger. 
Yeah. Uh, you, if you've been listening this far, you know we're talking to Brad Stone. He's the author of The Everything Store, Jeff Bezos and the Age of Amazon. Let's take a few more. Let me give, offer a few more um, questions here, Brad, as we wind down. Um, so not too long ago, uh, Jeff Bezos bought the Washington Post. Um, that's, how much did that surprise you? Your local paper. Uh, that... uh, the paper, the paper <laughs> delivered to the doorsteps of this neighborhood. I would love to say that I anticipated that, that the book- <laughs> Say it then, just say yeah, it. Yeah, the book was ready to go and had a whole chapter on it. Yeah. I was I was stunned, as everybody else was. I think there was probably a little a line of drool uh, coming down my face as I read the news. Um, but, you know, after a while, I think we filled in some of the gaps in the story, and the Graham family was, was selling the paper, and we know actually that the eBay founder was interested and mm-hmm. did- and and Jeff Bezos has you know has loved books uh, his whole life. Uh, many of Amazon's big decisions are are based on books. Uh, he's built the Kindle business for authors. Yeah. Um, he he had many editorial employees in Amazon's early years. He he believes, and I think he views owning a newspaper and ter- potentially turning it around as ultimately an advantage for this ecosystem of content that he's assembling. Yeah, and he also is. I mean, a, for a guy who's bi- bi, you know spent his early career as as a quant in a in a big um, Wall Street firm, um, he's a reader. He's a literary guy. I mean, you have in the book an appendix with books that he rakes, requires or asks Amazon employees to read. There's uh, something really remarkable in the Amazon meeting. It begins with a six page narrative right. where people have to write something, and his argument is that when you write it, you strip out. The, the BS and you can't hide behind the bullet points. Um, and, and so, you know, he does seem to be uh, devoted very much to the written word, which is which I think is fantastic. And what, what, I, what I hear from people in the post is that it, at least his initial visit there was went over very well. I think that's right. I think if you're a post employee, uh, you're optimistic now because you yeah. have an owner who not only has tremendous resources, mm-hmm. but whose reputation, and to some extent, is staked to the success of this very public franchise. Yeah. And he's going to work like hell to make that yeah. success. Yeah. I wonder how much of his time he'll actually spend working on the post, though. Well, he, he's spread pretty thin. Yeah. But I, as I think I said earlier, one of his talents is really kind of maximizing the use of his time. Yeah. I describe it as all the chess boards perfectly angled so that he could play many games at once. I don't think a lot of time, but I think ultimately that he brings some of his people who think like him into the post and they and they uh, start making some significant changes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I actually am fair. I mean, as a Washingtonian, as a, as a reader of the Washington Post, um, I'm actually fairly bullish on it. I think that he could bring a kind of dynamism to the paper that was lacking, a kind of dynamism perhaps even to the newspaper industry that's been, that's been lacking. Um, another question, Brad. You know, lots of our listeners are, are small entrepreneurs. They're people who are running their own businesses, obviously not at this scale. Uh, is there a lesson from Amazon's rise or from Bezos's life you think is valuable to, for them? I think the most important one is, is figure out what you do uh, that you're best at, mm. right? That nobody else can copy mm-hmm. um, and 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 protect it. Mm. And so for Amazon, and this took ten years, it was really figuring out how to how to ship product, you know, from point A where it's stored to point B, which is the customer's house. And no one really had figured out to do that yeah. well. And, yeah. and by comparison, you know, eBay. Took a flyer on that, right? They never figured that out or got into the complexity of of that kind of distribution. And when Amazon really finally figured it out and started doing it well, that's when you saw it roll out. Uh, Amazon Prime, 
uh, which is, of course, the two-day shipping yep. service and fulfillment by Amazon, which yep. is a service that allows other companies to store their products in Amazon's warehouses. So they took that one thing and they turned it into an, adva- an advantage. And now, of course, he's going and building all these additional businesses on top of Amazon Prime. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great insight for you know both individuals and small companies alike. It's you know, I think it's great advice. Focus on what you do. What do you do better than anybody else? And do that and protect it. And um, and I think that that kind of laser-like, I keep coming back to this kind of laser-like focus. Like at some point I wanted to be inside of Bezos's head to sort of see, like, what does the world look like when you have that kind of intense focus? A um, couple of things just on for our listeners who are interested in drawing lessons for their, for their own lives. I, I think there, there are a couple of interesting comments in there, uh, one of which is that, is that Bezos um, is a fan of Alan Kay, the, the um, uh, guy who uh, formerly at, at Apple. And, um, and he's fond of a statement that says, point of view is worth 80 IQ points. Right, and he used to he used to say that quite a and bit. You had 80, those... And you add eighty IQ points to to to, uh, to Bezos, and you're, <laughs> you're in pretty right high numbers. There. Yeah, right. You're probably in you're probably in four digits. Right, <laughs> and uh, and and that first Amazon job listing had an Alan K quote on it on it too. He was he was a fan. Yeah, um, you know. Uh, but what does he mean by that? Yeah, what's, what does what's, he what's, mean? What's point the le- what's, what's the lesson that? Well, I mean, how, or how does Bezos' own life reflect this idea that point of view is where they do? You comes? know, having perspective uh-huh. and believing something strongly and pursuing that singular goal, you know, make makes you kind of more credible and more effective. You know, makes you smarter. Uh, and so he he does have a strong perspective, and and you and you see it every time he launches a product. You know, he's selling. Kindle Fire tablets at cost, mm. right? And it doesn't make any sense, and 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 shareholders, you know, should should reject it. Uh, except that he, you know, he says we're we're going to make it up. You know, we're gonna we're gonna sell ads, and uh, our customers are going to buy more for us, and this is going to be profitable over the over a period of five years. And um, you know, when you have that kind of conviction, uh, and and of and to go back to a previous point, you're proven right again yeah, and again. Yeah, yeah. Uh, people trust you more, and and he's like a ball player that's called his shot so many times and has been proven right that uh, you know uh, yeah. he's he's you know shareholders love him and even as we talk Amazon you know stock has hit another high uh, right and I think it's a good lesson for all of us you know about about having a distinctive point of view and and he talks about this a little bit in the famous love memo where he talks about not being a fast follower or something like that but actually being distinct there's something else that he talks about here and I want to end on this because I think it goes to um, Bezos's life it goes to it goes to all of our lives it goes to the epigram in the book as well. Bezos talks about something that he calls with char- characteristic wonkiness the regret minimization framework. What's that? Right. Well, this is famously the phrase he used to justify leaving his hedge fund in New York and going to start a business on the internet, uh, leaving a bonus behind. And and basically he said to himself, you know, when I'm 80, Will you know? Will I regret not taking the chance and not participating in this internet revolution? And and will I you know? Will I regret that more than leaving behind my bonus? You know, basically, it's I guess another variation of go for it. You know, Mm -hmm, when you're mm -hmm. inspired and you have an idea, go for it. And he really has done that again and again. Um, But it's also I think what's interesting about that it's also the long view again. It's not saying hey, just go for it, but he's saying. Look at your life from the vantage point of being 80 or 90. Right. Take that long view again. And I, I, I find that actually quite powerful. 
Absolutely. And it's why even 20 years, you know, after he, you know, he still talks about that. And, and if he's addressing students, he brings it up. Um, and I think it's, it's something that he, you know, he, he uses to inspire employees as well. He wants everyone there to take the long view. Right. And also, but even that whole idea of the regret minimization framework, I, I actually think that's a, a very appropriate question for all of us to ask in the midst of a decision is, you know, what it, 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 I, have to, I have two choices, A or B. Uh, which one am I going to regret when I'm 80? And I think that's actually not a bad way to make decisions. And I think that whole idea of this, this incredible long view that he has is really, I find it very compelling, e- even to the point where he's investing in this uh, Stuart Brand project, the clock of the long now, which is a clock that, what, what does it tick every... Right, every every thousand years, yeah. I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's building in his uh, Texas ranch and the yeah. space company, Blue Origin. Right. Right, because... Yeah, he, we didn't even have a chance to talk about space, but that's the final frontier. He wants to go to space. Yeah. That's one of his goals. And he doesn't want to be 80 years old and have, never have, and not have uh, fulfilled try, that dream. Tr- tried to do that. So um, very, very uh, interesting and complex character, this Jeff Bezos. Uh, we've been talking to Brad Stone. He's the author of The Everything Store, uh, Jeff Bezos and the Age of Amazon. It's really, uh, you know, obviously the definitive book on on. on one of the de- defining companies of our age. It's a really great read as, as well. Uh, Brad, where can people find out more about you and the book? Well, uh, there's my website, brad-stone.com. And also you could buy it on a site called amazon.com <laughs> or your friendly local neighborhood bookseller. So uh, I, I would urge people to, to walk down the street and buy it there if they can. The, uh, fantastic. So uh, that is it for Office Hours. Uh, Brad Stone, thanks for being with us. Uh, to all of you, please tune in to our next episode when our guest will be Diane Ravitch, author of Reign of Error with some very provocative insights on American education. Until then, I'm Daniel Pink. This is Office Hours. If you've missed an episode... You ought to be ashamed of yourself, but you can make amends by going to iTunes or danpink.com to download all of our previous episodes with some really, really great guests. Until then, thanks for listening.